back. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Lens. And it's already the last week of July. I can't believe it. A very special treat for everybody. We have two fabulous in-studio guests today. Where's the applause meter, Brian? Where's the applause meter? Yeah, gee. Hang on. Hang on. He's got he's to find it. Yeah, I look for it. We've got Kristen West and Armin Nasiri. Hello. Are here to talk about their film, Seeking Valentina. We were lucky enough to have them make a stop here on their way to the San Antonio Film Festival. Yes, yes. Oh, he found it. He found Aww, it. How sweet. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Brian. That was that was that was lovely. Well, you know, we're gonna and later on in the show, Lori Kahn is gonna be joining us. She's been calling in from Vermont to talk about her film, Love Between the Covers, which of course Kristen already saw my my teasers about that. And <laughs> I will I will even let you you may even ask Lori to explain Amish romance novels to you. I'm dying to know. <laughs> Dying. <laughs> there, there, there are so many things in this documentary that all are dying to know. Trust me. But as part as is our tradition here, we now get to to hear Brian's special segment of the show. It's a very special segment. Oh yeah. Yes, this is the it's, Star Wars segment. That's what I look forward to. And for some reason, never have queued up. Right away. But I, I have it right now. So, Star Wars Episode 8. Yes. I just recently watched Episode 7 yesterday again. 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 Watched it again. Again. After having watched it last week and the week before that. I love that film. Well, Star Wars Episode 8 <laughs> is about 507 days, 12 hours, 57 minutes. And as soon as I'm done speaking this sentence, 24 seconds to go. You like, you like this precision. It's amazing. Thank you. But it's He, he should line produce. He loves Star Wars. Oh, I love Star Wars. But... Oh. But. The wait time is too immense, too crazy for episode eight. So Rogue One comes out in 104, uh, 143 days, 12 hours, and 57 minutes ago. So it's about, like I was telling you, every week I notice a trend that it's about seven days less. Isn't that yeah, amazing? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out why that is, but uh, that's your Star Wars countdown. And, you know, and River. we were talking before Kristen and Armin got here about uh, Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. So you have not had a chance to check out all of the Comic-Con materials yet. No, I'm going to dig through it as soon as the program's over. Okay, so in other words, what he's saying, he's going to rush me out of here today. No, he won't. No, I won't. But, no, it's it, – Brian, has, he has new toys now. Because mm-hmm. he also has a podcast. He has a podcast in the afternoon. I do. But oh, wow. He does. But, you know, also his, like mine, we are live. So we're actually live on the radio. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a podcast after. So as you know – you can find all of Behind the Lens on iTunes, on YouTube, on my site. And did you know there are actually two video channels in China that actually pick up the video of this show? How fabulous awesome. is that? It, well, my attorney said, well, you know, on the one hand, it's not too fabulous because right, it's copyright cause... infringement. He <laughs> said, but just think of all those billions of people in China. Well, you'll monetize it someday. Someday. So I, like, I assume that uh, some of uh, your podcast shows are you guys ha- you have a, a dedicated like Star Wars special. <laughs> uh, actually, last year we, oh, we on my did. podcast uh, on well on Debbie's show. This is what we do with with Star Wars, which is enough for me. And but, then we did a whole huge thing last year for Star Wars Seven. And then we gave Star Wars a, a really good talk about a couple weeks ago when they released 
A couple of things. The, the toys, remember? Well, the, the, the toys. The London release. Because he also goes to Disneyland every week, so he sees all the toys coming out. Yeah, I'm an annual pass holder. So I'm, I was there for May the 4th Be With You and uh, Revenge of the 5th. So I was there for both days, which was a lot of fun. Of course, very lackluster. Mm. Yeah, they're getting ready for Rogue One. Definitely. Uh, and uh, Tomorrowland, if you haven't been in a while, it's just completely Star Wars land at this point. Wow. Yeah, everything's Star Wars. Besides a couple rides, but they, they changed Space Mountain to Hyperspace Mountain, so that's that's Star Wars related. And then there's a whole section where you can see movie props from Episode 7, as well as take your photo with Kylo Ren, which I've done multiple times. He has. And Chewbacca, yeah. Did you camp out on Hollywood Boulevard when the when the movie came out? No, I actually, I, I <laughs> crowds scare me, which is weird because I go to Disneyland all the time, so I just waited a week after watching it. But it was fun to to have such a big culture kind of wrap around it where nobody spoke about the film. Nobody ruined the film. You know how some movies, you're wa- some yeah. people will ruin things for you on, on social media. This was one of those rare films where nobody spoke about it. It happens to us Game of Thrones fans all the time. I, I, I keep seeing things about that. I, I do not have time to watch Game of Thrones, sadly. Never seen an episode, but I know exactly what's going on mm-hmm. because of social but, media. But yeah. yeah. And I always see people who are posting, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Don't post anything. Yeah. You know, sacred silence in, in around... Fandom is a thing. It is. You need to maintain it. Every time I saw uh, Star Wars on, on Facebook newsfeed, I mean, as soon as they mentioned it, I just quickly just exit out. <laughs> well, you know, with Star Wars, that was one of the great things, and I got to hand it to Disney. They kept it so tightly under wraps, and our press screening wasn't even until two days before the film came out. Yeah, usually they do those a week before, because I actually, one of the jobs I had when I was. An undergraduate, not a job, but an internship, as I used to host press screenings in Austin, and it was always exactly a week before. All medias, and then if you're doing long lead and you're doing the press junkets and the interviews, it's be, it's prior to that. But for that, they, there was a super secret event at the L.A. Convention Center that Ooh. had everybody there, including Harrison. Wow. Getting Harrison somewhere, that's... <laughs> he's getting better about it, though. Carrie was there with her dog, Gary. Carrie and Gary? Yes, Gary Fisher stole the show, but we went into this. It had every bit of merchandising there you could th- that was going to come out. Just absolutely costumes, amazing presentation and press conference. But we went into this without seeing anything. Wow. And it wasn't until two days before the film opened. Quiet as a mouse. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Mickey's lips were sealed. <laughs> And personally, I think that's I think that's how it should be for every film, really. Let the uh, go back to the old forms of distribution where yeah, press can go, they they screen it, but everything breaks opening day or opening week. So the anticipation is there for the audience. Anticipation is such a big part of enjoying a movie experience and when that's taken away from you, it's it's really hard to invest as much cuz yeah. You know, you're paying for tickets. You're paying for the experience of seeing in a big screen, which is more and more becoming less of a reality, especially for people who are younger. Mm-hmm. You know, to see it on a projected and then to not to know every little intricate detail or ha- even having a trailer reveal too much. Mm, people will just go watch, will buy a ticket for a movie just to see that trailer. I know people who do that. What they did with uh, Batman 89. Yep. Phil Barrett, I'm talking about you. Yes. Um,. <laughs> Yes, people I know and love, I will call them out on things like that. But yes, I have known him to buy tickets, this particular young man to go buy tickets just to see the trailer. 
you know, it's, it's just it boggles the mind. But that's a, that's a problem. Now, you as a director, Armin, um, do you see when you want have a, a trailer for your film cut? Mm-hmm. Do you want? Le- do you believe in the less is more theory? Oh yeah, because you want. I mean, the whole point of trailer is to sell to the audience uh, what the movie is like, and to get them out of their seats and go and, and check the movie out. Mm-hmm. Well, now, did you cut the trailer for Seeking Valentina? Yes, I did. Well, that explains why you sit there and go, what's going on? And what is this film about? <laughs> so tell, so which one of you wants to tell me? Tell everybody what this, what is Seeking Valentina about? Because anybody that sees the trailer, and of course you can go to SeekingValentina.com. Correct. And you can see it there and see all kinds of cool pictures behind the scenes and production design and, and everybody's smiling faces. Um, but what is, what is this story about? Well, uh, Seeking Valentina is about this, about an Iranian American writer. Um, it's been like a year since he lost his wife and he decides to turn his office to a bedroom and rents it out to a tenant to make some extra money on the side. And then he takes in a whimsical tenant played by Kristen West and whimsical. And she's, um, like eerily similar uh, to um, Benjamin, played by Ali Bavarian. Uh, she's um, like a, eerily similar to his wife, and he takes her in. And then the next day, she disappears, and he goes out to look for her. And and is up to the inter- uh, to the audience's interpretation if she is a, a runaway, a hallucination, a ghost, um, etc. Is it all in his imagination, or? Is he dead and everybody else is alive? You know, it's an open narrative. It's very, very open to audience interpretation, mm-hmm. and there are d- different kind of clues that would lead you in, in one direction, and then clues that would lead you into another direction. And it's always fascinating for us to get the feedback after the screening because, inevitably, when we go to a film festival like the upcoming San Antonio Film mm-hmm. Festival, the first question we always get asked at the Q and A is, "Who's behind the door? What or what is Valentina?" So, and it's interesting because it's always a what, not a who. That's that is a very interesting question to to get. Mm-hmm. So I always say Valentina is a being, and then it's up to you to determine what kind of being she is. Is she a flesh and oh. blood being? Is she an imaginary being? But she has some sort of existence on some plane of reality or surreality mm-hmm. that you get to kind of determine what how how she exists for you. So where did this story come from? This is not your run-of-the-mill kind of story. You know, where, where did this come from when, when you were – did it just pop into your head in, in the shower one day? Yeah, I mean, the idea came, came by lightning. <laughs> um, well, my, uh, my father is a landlord. And, I mean, that's what uh, I was exposed to at a young age was um, I would go to, rental, to houses with them. Whenever he went to go pick up uh, the check from the tenant, or, every, or he was also a handyman, so every time there was a maintenance problem, he would, he would go and, uh, and fix it. So I mean, that's what I mean. I was born into you know the family of you know rental homes, and um, and he still does it today. Mm-hmm. He still has rental homes in, in North Carolina and California, and I've always just you know wondering you know what would it, what would it, I was always wondering um, what would happen if the person who was the source source of your income just disappeared without a trace. And what if this person happens to be a woman that you uh, fall in love with? 
and and um and also how um everything with you comes into a test mm. so now when you were writing this was it your intent to direct or was it just writing to write it it was my intent to um write and direct it mm-hmm. i mean the um because of my uh life experience you know with with my father um the idea just kind of came to me about a, a widower living in a remote uh, town with his son and he takes in a tenant and then the tenant disappears and he goes out to look for the tenant. And then I wrote it into a treatment and then the treatment turned into a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I totally, um, totally surprised myself when um, I'm just uh, <laughs> the well, way the story turned out. Well, now we're, cause so many direct, so many writer directors, when they're writing and they know they're going to direct, they're getting visuals of, the vis- they're seeing the visuals in their head. Some actually go so far as to storyboard it while they're writing, knowing they are going to get the money and they're going to make this film. Were you sick? Because we were talking earlier, and originally you saw this film as taking place in the desert in a dry area, and then lo and behold, where are we? In the snow in Big Bear. Yep. <laughs> that's the that's the direction it went, and then it just I think it just took the, the vision to a whole other level. I remember when we he first showed me the script, a rough draft of it. I think the first thing, because we had always filmed in town. We had, you know, even Armin and I have known each other for a long time, even back when he was studying film at LACC. And I looked at the script and said, Armin, you realize we're going to have to go out of town for this, right? This is going to be an issue. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> this is going to be a little I mean, out of our comfort zone. And, and that's what I wanted because um, I think – if you want to make great art, you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, it just being in LA and, and being around all these projects, uh, projects I was working on, it just started to feel like a bubble. Mm-hmm. I just feel like everybody was just writing about um, their roommate experience or trying to, and the highs and lows of living in LA and trying to be an entertainer. And I just mm-hmm. didn't think that was compelling. It's like, how are you going to get people on the other side of the country to connect with you? Mm-hmm. But and and I really wanted to just get out of the environment. I mean, I just wanted to s- see something that was new. Because, I mean, I feel like what, what in Los Angeles are people not exposed to? Everybody's seen the Hollywood sign. Everybody's seen the Beverly Hills sign. Everybody's mm-hmm. seen the, the Pacific Ocean. And I wanted something new and, and to, to show that, um, that this could be anybody. You know, mm-hmm. Anybody can live in, in a house and, and, and be lonely and, and wanting uh, people around. And, um, I mean, a lot, I mean you, can't go, you can't get any more universal than love. And, mm-hmm. and, and we really wanted to show a middle American experience mm-hmm. as well. And I remember, you know, once we had a f- pretty much what we thought was a, a final draft, a shooting draft, we, we literally got in a car in mid-October, drove to New Hall, and then drove to Ojai, found some great locations in Ojai as well. Part of the movie is shot in Ojai. Mm-hmm. And really opened up to what what was available to us to shoot. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a great experience doing that. And Armin, you know, Armin had, he had storyboards. He definitely... I remember we were sitting down with someone and they were like, oh, you have your storyboards ready. And we had – he had them and <laughs> it was like an exciting thing. Um, exciting had, or a surprise to people? That surprise. It was kind of a little bit of a surprise. Okay. Then I want to know what people they've been dealing with before. Exactly. Right? Right. So we were – we were. he had his storyboards and he had, he had things marked out. But, you know, the thing was Ar- Armin was very open to modifying certain things to make the film better. And we would discover things as we were interacting with these communities, what they had available, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know, 
And so it was a process for of discovery in pre-production. I think that's one of the best ways in, in many ways to do pre-production is open up to it's not just serious pre-production. It's it's a discovery. It's a mm-hmm. it's an adventure. And we definitely had that adventure um doing uh doing the location scouting and really getting to know these communities that were were outlying and, and not Mm-hmm. Not in the in the heart of the city. Well, in that pre-production, what would you consider to be your greatest find from a directorial standpoint? As you're, you know, engaging with the communities, you're seeing what's available. What was your greatest find that you think helped define the film? It really helped define the film and pre-production. I mean, definitely locations. I mean, you know, locations were just a character of it, of its own. And, um, I mean, finding the house was... Yeah, um, how hard was finding the house? <laughs> especially when 95% of the story takes place in the house. I mean, that was um, really important, was to get the perfect house. And, that- then, um, and then when, um, when we were looking at our, a crystal, a metaf- uh, crystal shops, and, um, and we, we encountered um, Emily Hefner and Diane Sylvester who were working uh, at the Soul Center at the time, mm-hmm. and they were interested in the project. And then it so happened that there were two female characters written in the story, one as the uh, employee and the other as the employer. And they, want, <laughs> and they were interested in the story, and they were also real actresses themselves. And, I mean, that made my job really easy. I didn't have to worry about um, transporting actor, actresses from L.A. to Ojai. I just arrived at Ojai, and they were there, just put on makeup, and then hit, they hit their spot, and... Dress set, and, fully dressed set, just that. walk in. <laughs> doesn't does doesn't that, you love it when it makes your life easy like that? Oh yes, I mean I w- I was so prepared to because um, I I had an idea. Of, I mean I knew I knew a couple of uh, women that I met that I I had an Id- I had them in mind for um, the roles of uh, of uh, Pamela and uh, and Amy because I mean I had no idea that we were going to search for a location and then there just so happens that there was actresses working there and they're interested <laughs> and. Uh, I mean, I was just um, prepared. Like, whoever I picked, you know, I was going to let them know, hey, do you know anything about rocks? Do you know anything about um, minerals? Do you know anything about the antiques? You know, because we want, we want, I want you to look like you know what you're doing and, and what you're talking mm-hmm. about. But I didn't have to worry about that with Emily Diane. I mean, they already knew everything in that store. Any any item in that store, you, know, you point out, they already had knowledge behind it. That's fabulous. So it, made my, it just made my job easy. It was just like, wow. A real actress and a real um, person working there just – I mean, it was like it was just meant to happen. Well, and especially since you moved out of L.A. proper, which, you know, throw a stone and you're going to hit an actor or an actress. Right. Yeah. But to, to go out to Ojai mm-hmm. and actually find trained actresses mm-hmm. who then have the additional skill set for the characters. <laughs> that That's, you know, that's cosmic that, intervention. It is. And, you know, it was... We we were we were trying to find the house in Ojai, and we couldn't find the house in Ojai. We couldn't find it in Newhall. But one of probably the most talked about um, scenes in the film is um, Benjamin uh, visiting his uh, psychiatrist, Doctor Lodi. And actually, at Soul Center, there was a geodesic dome mm-hmm. in the back, which is probably one of the most popular stills of the film. Is is um, Benjamin on the couch with the geodesic dome in mm-hmm. the back? And that was just happened to be on the same property as the as the as the rock shop. We got to use mm-hmm. it all in one day. So I definitely there was definitely some sort of uh, serendipity or cosmic intervention there because it it all sort of came together in spite of mm-hmm. of some of the challenges that we did face in, in getting the film made and 
and done and and we're just so happy that we got to also film in these communities and and people Mm. were open and receptive to us and we were fully permitted and had insurance and all that and we were trying to work with the communities as much as Mm -hmm. possible and see and that's something i don't hear enough producers or filmmakers talk about is working with the communities Mm -hmm. i know this is a big thing that ali afshar and the guys at esx are doing now Allie grew up in Petaluma. Most of the people uh, in ESX have an affinity or a tie with Petaluma. And they do all their filming up there. And the community really gets behind mm-hmm. the filming. But I don't. It's, it's so wonderful to hear a producer talk about working with the communities. Because you never know what might open up to you. Right. You know, you may have permit issues normally. But then somebody will s- suddenly say, if they like you, that's okay. You can use my garage. You can... Exactly. Um, we, we, you know, I feel that we have to be, as producers and people in the film business, we have to be good neighbors. And we don't, you know, you know, people's streets are getting blocked off. We, we didn't have to actually block off a street in Big Bear, but we did have people running down the street. So, of course, we want to ensure the safety of the actor, the safety of the crew. We have to kind of notify people that we're running down the street that day. <laughs> so... Um, you know, it is important so that filmmaking is a positive experience for people, mm-hmm. not just for the crew and the cast and the investors and the and the people directly involved, but the community also has to see it as a positive experience. So they fight for things like incentives when it comes up because mm-hmm. we lose, you know, we lose filmmaking jobs to other states because of incentives. If communities didn't see it as a, a deterrent or a hassle, they might get more invested so that we can spend more dollars locally. Mm-hmm. And that's something I always I always think about is we want to be good neighbors and good stewards of the communities that we're in. And Big Bear in particular, because we really got to know the community, mm-hmm. we had to scout it a few different times for different reasons. Um, but we actually, um, um, because we had created good relationships in the community, we, we actually filmed part of it at Big Bear Bowl, at the bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> And it was fun. And it was fun. We had a very positive experience there. And, you know, we tried, you know, we, we, we worked with the owner of Big Bear Bowl and, you know, made sure, worked within their parameters and everything was lovely. And Inland Empire Film Commission is uh, great. They're restructuring right now. Mm-hmm. But um, they're filming down in, in the Inland Empire area is, is very, um, um, very, very filmmaker friendly, mm-hmm. which is exciting. Well, I want to ask each of you, what what led you into producing, Kristen? And, Armin, what led you into filmmaking? Um, well, I, mean, act, I mean, I started off as an actor, you know, since the age of 14. And, um, I mean, I never really thought about uh, writing and directing. I mean, at the time, I was just very passionate with acting. Um, there, was some, there was just something with, with acting that was... Uh, um, it was like just kind of like basically taking everything that was negative and, and, and bring it to a positive and mm-hmm. uh, expressing yourself. And then you're also telling, you're telling a story. So writing your, you, your performance is telling the story. And, um, and I've always had a desire for writing and directing. Like once I hit my senior year in um, high school, cause I started to, uh, I started watching a bunch of movies and I was inspired by Scorsese and his like collaboration with Robert, De, Robert De Niro. And, um, and so I've always had that desire, but I still my my first love was still acting, and then um, and then when I moved to uh, 
you know, California and when I, you know, got accepted to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I mean, that was my main focus. And then, um, after the program ended, um, I had to make a decision. It's like, do I want to just keep, um, auditioning for strangers and hopefully I get a part or can I go back to school and educate myself on behind the cameras and try to have more career control, more of a creative control. Uh, because there's no way that I'm just going to put all my eggs in one basket just trying to be an actor, especially mm-hmm. when uh, when people who look like me in America are a very small demographic. Mm-hmm. So the, the the opportunities were limited, and I wanted to go behind the, uh, the scenes and um, and also just create opportunities for myself and for other people. And, and it just it, it just happened. I mean, I took some courses. I mean, we had to uh, you know shoot on our own, direct it, and then editing, and the, it just all came together. Mm-hmm. And, um... And, I, um, go ahead. And I feel, well, you know, shoot, <laughs> if, if Woody Allen and Warren Beatty and Clint Eastwood and John Favreau can do it, so can I. Absolutely. And what about for you, Kristen? What got you into producing and... I had been acting since I was seven years old. I actually started off in my community theater, and I had done competitive theater in high school, so I was definitely theater nerd girl for a very long time. And when I was 18 and had gotten into the University of Texas, I discovered they had a really great film program. And I never picked up a camera in my life. I just watched movies. And I said, you know what? This is my opportunity to really learn how to make a movie because the skill the skill set is transferable. Mm-hmm. So I got my Bachelor of Science from UT Austin Radio TV Film not too long ago. And... I went to the semester in L.A. program where it's actually your study abroad. You get to go from Texas to Los Angeles. Oh, that that well, in so, that could be considered a very far abroad, yes. Right. So I actually got the opportunity to study with um, Phil Nemi, who at one time was the VP of Disney. And he, mm-hmm. he, um, taught, he taught a producing class and, and introduced us to this idea of the talent producing partner that, you know, People who are actors can produce films. So I, I actually learned how to line produce in his class. So I uh, learned how to budget, learned how to schedule, learned all about permitting, learned logistics, payroll, all of those kinds of things. Insurance. Insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Insurance. Get it. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, my education really enabled that, and it gave me a way to um, – I have similar feelings to Armin – in terms of I I really needed to feel like there were certain aspects of my creative life that I could be more proactive and be in charge of. So it's a good balance for me because, you know, when you're an actor, you're supposed to be very receptive, very open, very, you know, go with the flow. And that's kind of one part. I like to see that as kind of one part of the brain, kind of the right mm-hmm. brain. And producing gives me the chance to, you know, take charge, to plan things, to have a vision, to execute it, help others execute their vision. And it's kind of a very left brain activity. So it kind of gives me in my life a certain balance that mm-hmm. I really crave. And um, I like to think I'm, I'm getting more successful at it as we go along. Um, and it was it, it's exciting for me to get to, to have that sort of varied creative life and different because there are creative aspects to producing too it's not mm-hmm. just all numbers and and phone calls and yeah and all of that there's definitely a creative aspect to it that's important and valuable well you know now the really big question mm-hmm. is producer you act in the film mm-hmm. armin yeah 
Did she take off the producer hat or try and pull rank on you when you told her to do something as a director? I mean, I mean, I definitely uh, give more power to uh, Kristen for uh, executing both, uh, you know, heavy job, on both on both aisles. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a shout out to Mo Whelan. Um, Mo Whelan was our first AD and our supervising producer, and about. A week before um, the shoot, I met with her and I said, I'm going to hand you the baby. <laughs> Here's the bastard production binder. <laughs> Here's what I need you to do. So you could focus on acting. So I could focus on acting. I was getting up very early in the morning. I was getting up at four in the morning and making sure that that the books were balanced and the checks were clearing and that people were getting paid and 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 the logistics management of it. The, the financials that we were, you know, you don't want, you want to make sure you pay your bills in the community that you're filming in because that could be a problem too. Everything like that went off without a hitch. But in the morning, I would make sure that, that all of the, the financial stuff was going. And then after that, I would just focus on being in what I call the Valentina space. I mean, Christine mm-hmm. was such a, a trooper. I mean, she, I mean, I mean, both of us were, were uh, wearing multiple hats mm-hmm. um, in, in this project. And then, just and finally having and once you she laid that down having to you know move to the other side and uh, and get to the role of Valentina, I mean she pulled it off great uh, as a producer and actress and I couldn't ask for a better Valentina. I had a really good director I worked with on that film. Uh, well, on that note, we're going to switch gears here. I know you're waiting for this. You're and we're going to welcome we're going to welcome Lori Kahn in into the Fun Fest today. Are you there, Lori? I am indeed. Oh, I am so happy to talk to you. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Fine. And here in the studio with me today, we have some other filmmakers, Kristen West and Armin Nasiri. They've got a short film that's uh, on the Fest circuit, and they're getting ready to head to San Antonio Film Festival with. Terrific. And, yes, Kristen is already, she was reading my teasers about love between the covers. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am just so thrilled. So oh, I, told, I, to here. I told you at LAFF it was a must-see film. Well, thank you very much. You know, did, did you think you would get to this point with love between the covers and, you would ha- and it would now be distributed? And with a company like The Orchard, who I just love. Yeah, I don't think I expected to be with The Orchard, but, you know, I did definitely expect to be out there. But I didn't expect, you know, the hundreds of screenings that this film has had all over the country and actually around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've been following, you know, the fest circuit for the film. And, oh my God, after the U.S. premiere at LAFF, I mean, you have just been everywhere. Just about, yeah. Who knew that romance novels were this big? Well, it's really a story about women's lives, too. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a story about the ways that women build communities, and I think people who have nothing to do with romance novels really respond strongly to the film. Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a common thread you have in all of your films. Yep. You know, your Tupperware film, if anybody has not seen Lori's Tupperware film, you must see her her ladies of Tupperware film. It's fun. It's it, fun. It, it, it's bittersweet and it's really telling too. So now what for you went into for people that may be on the fence about romance novels and you know as I found out 
the documentary is very educational. I never knew that there were so many different kinds of romance novels, but I also didn't really know the whole history of love and romance and expressions of same through through the ages, through the centuries. Mm. I mean, nothing could be more basic or more human, actually. I mean, you know, people have been writing love poetry and telling love stories and writing love songs and since the novel was created, writing romantic novels, you know, since the early days of the novel. And in fact, women were the primary writers of novels back when novels began. Yeah. So it does. It goes way back. Yeah. Now, your research project uh, process for Love Between the Covers, you were working on this for over two years, were you not? More like four. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What did you know that you would always be directing this project when you yeah. embarked on it? Yeah, I knew that because you know it's it's a documentary, and that's what I've come up through the ranks. You know, knowing how to produce and direct and write. I didn't shoot it. I hired someone who's better at shooting than I am, <laughs> and I hired someone who's who's edited all my films to edit the film. So I know my limits, but um, directing, I'm, I I love directing. Well, you know, and you have all of these fabulous interviews, not only with fans from these conventions, but all of these romance writers from every different genre you can possibly think of. And I know Kristen's very enamored with the whole idea of an of Amish romance novels. Ah, yeah. I mean, it's the span, as you said, is huge, all the way from Amish, very chaste romance novels. You know, sort of looking back at a simpler agrarian life um, to, you know, BDSM and everything in between, you know, paranormal with vampires and African-American, historical, contemporary, lesbian, male-male. I mean, you name it, there's a romance for anybody's taste. And Fabio can be on the covers of all of them. Well, not anymore. No, I mean, that, that's Fabio tr- is not the sort of taste of today. He was very much the taste of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you look at romance novels, there there's also, you know, not as wide a range as covers in general, but they clearly signal what they are. I mean, there's the bare-chested torso with lots of red and black, which tends to be paranormal, you know, romances. And there's the chaste scene of a small town, which is sort of contemporary small town uh, romances. And then there's, you know, historicals and very erotic, um, you know, sort of suggestive images. So there's a whole range. Yeah, and you did you devote a whole section of the film to the idea, of, to the formulation and design of covers. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was also part of the conceit of the film being love between the covers. And, you know, <laughs> as you know from seeing the film, we also took the construction of covers as a kind of basic device to create our animation and sort of played with that. Very much so. Very much so. How difficult was it for you to narrow down the authors that you chose to interview? And which Incredibly ones? difficult. <laughs> really difficult. <laughs> I mean, I came into the romance community knowing very little and just plunged into the deep end and met lots of romance authors and readers, and they're really characters and very diverse and interesting. And, 
you know, I shot interviews with perhaps, well, I pre-interviewed hundreds of writers, and then I shot interviews, you know, in a beautifully lit interviews with probably 50 authors, and then had to figure out from those sort of which people I'd actually follow in their lives and their jobs, you know, sort of get to know them better. And it was tough. It was really tough. There were a lot of hard choices. And I wasn't just picking people who were really good on camera. I was also looking for a range of backgrounds, a range of subgenres that they write in, you know, a range of their own sort of lifestyles and day jobs. So I wanted to, to capture that. Um, so I couldn't have, you know, three historical romance writers, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what was the most challenging once you got beyond the research and narrowing down your structure? Because uh, you know, designing, chapterizing, and designing your structure of this film, I know you pained over this to get it yeah, right. It was tough because I had I ended up following sort of five authors and their readers. One is a Shakespeare professor by day, romance author by night. Another is a surgeon who writes lesbian romances. Another is an African-American who takes trips with her readers to the places where her novels are set. Um, Two women who team up all the time to write books um, and are now doing an entire series together. Um, So it it was interesting. I thought... So I knew pretty much what I wanted to convey, and I had a narrative arc in mind mm-hmm. when I began editing. But it was so interesting that we tried to make it work. I shot all of my main characters until, so I shot for three years. And I shot until there was some kind of resolution to the story as I understood it, some sort of cinematic sort of act three, in effect, um, for each character. And we showed the rough cut, so that's like a second draft, maybe, an equivalent for uh, an author. And we showed the rough cut at various stages to lots of people to get their feedback and to see where they're bored and where they're confused and where they're on the edges of their seat and where they tear up. And they really liked the characters, and they thought the subject was fascinating, even though they might have not expected that at all. They were like, whoa, who knew? But they were exhausted by the end of the film. And so we kept massaging the sort of narrative arc that I thought would work. And it's, it just didn't work. People were, you know, so what, what I finally realized is that the film, because I was following five different characters, but it's really a film about the community. What happens is that the film ended, and then it 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 it finally ended. And that was just exhausting. So I threw out a lot of the footage that I had shot and loved and just said, no, this opens up broad in Act 3. It doesn't have to finish off everybody's stories. Mm -hmm. And we hint at the finishing of everybody's stories. So I think it's dramatically satisfying but it really opens back up to the whole community at the end. So now that everybody can in, can enjoy Love Between the Covers on iTunes, iTunes movies and other platforms now? Yep, all over the place. Amazon, Xbox, Google Play, Google Play the whole... Satellite TV, K 
cable TV, all sorts of places. Now, are any any of the footage you had that killed you to not include that you, that you had to cut? Will we see any of that? I know some filmmakers now with distribution, uh, with digital distribution, are now including bonus extras. Yeah, there probably will be bonus extras on the DVD. But there already are bonus extras at our website at lovebetweenthecovers.com slash film release, one word. Mm -hmm. And you can see excerpts from the film there, the trailer, but also some of the things that didn't make it into the film. And there's some wonderful, I mean, there's some great stories there. If you had to pick one thing that pained you the most that you couldn't include, what would it be? Hmm... Um, oh, that's a hard one. I mean, one thing that pained me a lot, I had not just one video diary keeper. I gave video cameras to four different aspiring authors who hadn't been published yet. And one made it in who is in Australia. But I also gave video diary cameras to someone in the north of England, somebody in India, and someone in near just north of Atlanta, Georgia. And that footage was just so just appealing and interesting and and then there are just whole chapters of of stories that had to get cut from my main characters um that i would love to have had more in but i i I made the right choices so it'll be bonus extras people will get to see it it's the modern digital age so it doesn't have to remain on the editing room floor well there is i mean this film is so engaging that nothing should remain on the editing room floor because it's when you finish watching it, you want to know more. Mm-hmm. There, you figure there has to be more. You want to know more. And I, Kristen, as a producer, is sitting here nodding her head up and down. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can say there's yes, There's also, yes. <laughs> for people who are curious about the issues raised in the film, there's something called the um, Multimedia Resource Guide at our website, too, that has all kinds of... Um, documents and poetry and sort of explores big issues like race and romance and Jane Austen and the domestic revolution, things like that. So people can have at it and really have a good time with that, too. So now when we last talked in 2015, you had said you might be writing a feature (coughs) set in the romance world. Has that come to pass yet? I have been so busy, it hasn't come to pass yet, but it might, so stay tuned. So now you're, ta- you're taking a very much deserved break right now. Yes, I am. Well, Lori, I can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute joy having you today. Oh, thank you. And everybody should go and see Love Between the Covers. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, Lori. Okay, Bye-bye. Thanks. And we're going to take a short break while I choke to death again. And we'll be right back. And welcome back. And that was huge thanks to Lori Khan. Love between the covers, writer, director, now available on all your digital platforms. And trust me, it is an eye-opener and it's fun. So see it. Go to lovebetweenthecovers.com and you can even find out there all the platforms, or you can buy for download right there on the website. So it's well worth, well worth the money. And I don't say that about things too often. But 
Still here in the studio with me, Kristen West. And her partner in crime, Armin Nasiri, seeking Valentina on their way to San Antonio Film Festival. Um, something really, the look on Kristen's face, you'll get to see it on video later this week when the video is up of today's show. As Lori was talking about the various types of romance novels, uh, Kristen's face, <laughs> as some of them were being described. You know, I was waiting for her to chime in and say something, but no, I think she was just too aghast at some, and surprised. Well, I had, um, I was sharing during the break with Debbie that as an actor, sometimes you audition for voiceover and there's this huge market for romance novel audiobooks. And I've seen some incredibly strange titles and concepts, including, you know, um, um, guy on guy aliens. <laughs> And paranormal romance, you know, we, we, you know, I'm in the horror community, right. so is Armin, and we, we sometimes see vampire, lusty, lusty vampire kind of movies, and it's just the the, the array what? of titles and subject matter is is mind boggling, and and I, I can just imagine some of the titles, and you know, it's not just, you know, I think we we pigeonhole. Yeah. Also, the consumers of, of of this kind of media product, because it's not just you know women of a certain age. It's, it's teenage everybody. girls. The first time I ever really you know was exposed to one of these um, was um, as a teenage girl. One of my friends had the Chalice and the Blade. <laughs> oh my god! She's like, Kristen, you have to read this. <laughs> but the other thing, the other. Interesting thing is, and I'm so glad that um, um, the director brought up the history. I was um, cleaning out my my grandfather's house after he had passed, and he had this whole cachet, and I mean, it was a giant box full of these little pulp books called the Little Blue Books. Mm -hmm. And these were published anywhere from, I want to say, 1940 to 1960s. And of course, they're very euphemistic. But when you, they're, but they're very racy for their time. So this this pulp press is not just some sort of new, yeah. you know, moral crisis that we're having. And of course, I was laughing at the idea of Fabio with his beautiful hair, and you know, and the hair band aesthetic is too, yes. you know, comes out of that. But yeah, definitely. Oh, and werewolf love. Oh God, sultry werewolf. I mean, what is Twilight? <laughs> That's true. You know. Well, no, Twilight is glowy vampires. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, no. Mm -hmm. I can't get into glowy vampires. That's always been a problem. Give me Spike on Buffy and I'm happy. <laughs> you know. Give me Dracula in certain forms, I'm right. happy. Right. But glowy, sparkly vampires just doesn't, and werewolves and things doesn't cut it for me. But, you know, getting back to Seeking Valentina here, something that I find very interesting that you guys did is not only is your cast and your crew multi-ethnic, but you have a 50-50 gender split. Yes. Yes. And, um, I'm very proud to, uh, to do that justice because, I mean, how often do you see movies where it is gender balanced or right. have diversity? In 2016. Yeah, and it's become such a hot topic with the Academy issue this year, with subsequent things that are going on with the elections this year. So I find this particularly fascinating that you guys set out to do this, did you not? This was You wanted it this way. 
Oh yeah, we certainly did, and it's it's important that we we continue to pursue that, especially as independent filmmakers. We need to we need to foster these environments, and you know, Armin, the director, trusted me to help him execute his vision. I I brought on Mo Whelan to help me get the job done, and she was amazing. Um, and we had um, we just we just wanted to create that environment and. I think what, what the genius of what Armin is pursuing is creating the new norm. Mm-hmm. And as every independent filmmaker needs to do is to help create this new norm of gender <coughs> balance, ethnic balance, balanced portrayals. You can, ha- you, know, you can explore the light and dark sides of life. Everybody is a multifaceted individual. But we need to, we need to portray people in, in, more, in, in more varied ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, well, when people... When, when, People ask me, you know, why did you make uh, Seeking Valentina? I mean, it's, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I explained one reason about the whole uh, question about uh, a tenant disappearing based on my life experience. But this project was very personal to me, and I was very, very adamant about casting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt that it was really – I mean, I am an Iranian-American, mm-hmm. and uh, I identify as an American – but I don't know how many movies in Hollywood have characters who look like me on screen, and and I, and I felt like because um, because both you know America and Iran you know have not had a relationship you know since you know the revolution, and I really want to bring some healing uh, in, in this process and to cast uh, Iran Americans such as myself who, who who lived here for thirty years you know mm-hmm. who um, but we, I don't think we're any less American than Matt Damon I mean we. Some of us were born in North Carolina. Some of us were born in Rhode Island and Maryland. And we have lived the life as an American. And, and every time we turn on the TV, we see people who look like us and their um, ethnicity is a character. Mm-hmm. I'm like, something's not right. And something's not right at all. This is 2016. Why are we now talking about diversity? Why are we now talking about uh, women getting an equal platform? Mm-hmm. I mean, women have always uh, outnumbered men. I mean, I mean, the women outnumber men. And... Why are they like? Why are they being kind of elbowed out? And mm-hmm. I really wanted to bring that to the forefront. So once I, I mean, I was very adamant about the the Persian family, you know, because I feel like this was this is never portrayed. I wanted to show a, a positive light, but also show that this is um, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, if you lose somebody, you lose somebody. You know, if you live in a house, mm-hmm. you live in a house. I mean, there's just an, as everyday people. Yeah, I mean, the, these common threads are something. It's it's the universal experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and it should be colorblind so that, you know, you have a Persian family, you bring in Persian culture, but at the same time, it's the same as if you'd have a Jewish American family or something. Right. And I want to also give big props to Army because I'm not the typical romantically. I'm, I'm, I'm usually a supporting role. I'm comedic. I'm funny. I'm even body types get stereotyped. Mm-hmm. And we have certain reservations about certain body types. But he really took, you know, and I am a plus-size woman. And he took a risk in putting me in that role that would normally be um, reserved for someone who's more ingenue type. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an important aspect of the film, too. And that's uh, that's an important thing that we're seeing as well is that that we're allowing people to, to um, branch out into seeing – being seen differently. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it, it happens on several layers in this film, yeah. which is exciting to me, especially as a very producer. much. So. It was it was never my, it was never my intention to just uh, 
you know, cat, you know, make it to make the story like one sided of one demographic is, uh, this is how this is why you should you should look at one demographic and this is how you should look at the other the other side i wanted to make it equal i mean i mean it was very personal for me to have uh, uh iranian americans you know portrayed as you know everyday people and normalize them but also um i mean this is this isn't just about you know persians i mean hollywood you know stereotypes everybody i mean you have you always have this good looking all american caucasian guy the guys who look like peter kraus or matt damon i mean no, no disrespect uh, to them, but they all, they, you know, they do their job well. But they're always portrayed as the all-American right. person, the, the, the heroic figure. And then you always have the plus-size women who are always the sidekick or the or the, the funny person, and never as the uh, the love interest. And then you have um, Indians and Asians always portrayed as nerds or mm-hmm. a Seven Eleven clerk, and and that's just, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it's and. Um, and yeah. we actually play twice in India and are going to play a third time in India. And I credit that, besides the, the compelling themes of the film, right. we really – we had Srinivasa Kapavarp, who you've seen him in Outsourced and, mm-hmm. and uh, other television shows. We actually put him in a very interesting supporting role as Dr. Lodi mm-hmm. and 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 – Took him out of the, you know, the the you know the telemarketing center. Took him out of the gas station, yeah. and put him in something more, more fleshed out and more nuanced than mm-hmm. than normally someone in his in his type, whatever that is, mm-hmm. would normally get to portray. Mm-hmm. And I credit I credit our success abroad for taking those risks. Mm-hmm. As well as uh, Diane Sylvester. Diane Sylvester is a Jewish woman, and and we and we showed uh, we didn't we, we stepped away from any stereotypes that portray Jewish women, and we, sh- we put her in a in a room where she is a, this mystical figure, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and colorful, and I don't I don't know how you don't really see that that often, you know what I mean? I really just want to show what the present looked like. Mm-hmm. Well, now before we run out of time, since I'm looking at the clock and Brian isn't. Um, <clears throat> San Antonio Film Fest. Where can people see Seeking Valentina in San Antonio? July 27th at 5 p.m. We're going to be at the Tobin Center. We're in a block of shorts at the Tobin Center. They're all kind of magical and realistic. Okay. Um, you can go to www.safilm.com and get your tickets there. Uh, we also invite you to go to our Facebook page, and we actually have a Facebook event where you can learn more. And right after the screening at the Hotel Indigo, we're going to have a meet and greet with the filmmakers. And... Um, <laughs> Come out, take a picture, shake our hands. We'd love to meet you. And we love our San Antonio and Outlying Areas fans. I'm from there. Well, the, the entire hometown crowd exactly. must come see Kristen. Welcome her home. Right. Uh, Go Texas. <laughs> and uh, find us on Twitter. Uh, like us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, if, and you can follow our updates because after San Antonio, uh, we're going to be uh, playing in uh, – the Fly Film Festival in Enid, Oklahoma. That will be Saturday, August 6th at 7 p.m. in Enid. Ooh, mm. all right. And then around September, I mean, more uh, updates to uh, coming soon, but we will be playing at uh, the Irani Noor Film Festival, which will be taking place this year in Seattle, Washington. How nice. That's great. And, of course, when people watch Behind the Lens, the video later this week – all of this social media information of the Twitter, the Twitter, the Facebook, the website, it will all be on a lovely Chiron and on the end credits so you, you guys can see it as well. Thank you so much. Thank so, you so much. So I hope you guys will come back. We'd love to. We'd love and to. you can, of course, 
always call in when you get new festival dates so we can keep the audience advised and apprised. Absolutely. We, we would awesome. love to update uh, people with more information and more um, you know, festival and uh, I, and events. I, all right. And I want to see a TV series. So there you have it. I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. I mean, I've gotten a lot of inspiration lately. All right. Well, there. Brian gave us Brian gave us the nasty music. <laughs> so that's it. That's it for Behind the Lens this week. We'll be back next week, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on Adrenaline Radio.